Okay, so we're back in our series in the Gospel of John, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> this morning we look at uh, the most famous passage in the Gospel of John, one of the most famous in the Bible, John 3, 1 through 16, which contains the most, most uh, searched for verse in the Bible according to BibleGateway.com. The most searched for verse varies from year to year. Sometimes it's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Sometimes it's Romans 8, 28. Sometimes it's John 3, 16. John 3, 16 is always up there. We're going to look at that verse this week, and we're going to zero in on even more specifically next week. But uh, this is the story of Nicodemus, and I want to give you the, the main question that's asked right up front. And the question is, how can I encounter God both now and forever? That's the question that's on Nicodemus's mind. That's the question that's on a lot of people's mind. You think about the past 2,000 years of history, a lot of people have asked that same question. How do I really get to know God both now and forever? Think about it. That's Moses' question in Exodus 33, verse uh, 18. Moses says to God, show me your glory. He had a heart to know God. The same question that St. Augustine asked, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You think, okay, those guys are way back in the past. This question was asked by George Harrison in his song, My Sweet Lord. A little bit of a deceptive song, it sounded as if he was talking about Jesus. And then midway through, My Sweet Lord, the background vocals sing Krishna, Hare Krishna comes up. But in My Sweet Lord, listen to what, what he says. Um, he says, I really want to see you, Lord. I know you're humming it in, as I'm saying those words in your mind. Really want to be with you, but it takes so long. He's getting back to the question, how do I really get to encounter God both now and forever? The Grateful Dead explored this song in their song uh, in their uh, song called "Built to Last." This question, and Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter, who wrote the song, say we're searching for a meaning built to last till sunshine fails and the darkness moves on us all. It's a great song about the search for something deeper, something more that I'm not experiencing right now. Let me go on. Eric Clapton uh, addressed this song in, in his, uh, this question in his song, Presence of the Lord. Um, that, that, that song is a very amazing song. Clapton professed faith in Christ, uh, and he was free from alcohol for <coughs> a good number of months after that. He's been in recovery for many years now. But it's the question, how do I get to know what is prime reality, what God is? I want him now and forever. <clears throat> U2 addresses this in their song 40. The fray, not many probably know the song, the fray, but the fray addresses this song, this question in the song, You Foundly. I'm telling you, the human heart cries out for meaning, and the question is, how do I get to know God now and forever? <clears throat> That's Nicodemus's question. <clears throat> so, what I want to do is I, I want to recount the story 
I'm going to zero in on what the main idea of the story is, <coughs> and then we'll conclude with three takeaways. So I, I, I want you to dwell in this story for a moment. I want you to dwell in the story, because the story is a, is a really, really good story. As the story opens, I want you to imagine a dark street in central Jerusalem. And I want you to imagine a man walking down that street. It's darker than that picture shows, but it's about 9 o'clock at night. The city is now quiet. You can hear the crickets chirping in the grassy places in the city. And the man who's walking down that street has his robe pulled up high over his neck. His face is low. He's scanning the cross streets, making sure that nobody sees who he is, and where he's going. He is the most famous man in the city of Jerusalem at the time, and he does not want anybody to know his mission that night. Exiting Jerusalem through the eastern gate, he hikes down a a very steep section of the Kidron Valley. He steps onto the well-worn path that was the pathway between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives on the other side. He traverses the Mount of Olives, and then he takes the Jericho Road up the Mount of Olives. It's steep. And by the time he gets to the top, he's huffing and puffing, and his knees are a bit tired. After a short rest, he enters into a village. This was, is the ancient village of Bethany. I'm not sure it was Bethany, but people are, kind of think that it probably was, but it's dark. And he walks down a narrow path, and he, he knocks on the door of a humble home. Meanwhile, inside that house, Jesus has been interacting with his hosts. I don't know that it was Mary and Martha and uh, Lazarus, but maybe it was. Jesus is interacting with his hosts, and they finished up a really good meal. There's been great food and conversation, and there's laughter, and Jesus has been doing what he does best inviting people into the presence of God. And then they hear the knock on the door. And the host says, funny, I didn't think we were expecting anybody. But he goes to the door, and when he opens the door, his jaw drops. Because right there in the doorway is the most famous, most powerful man in the city. Now, maybe he's the second most powerful man in the city, but he's powerful. And, he, and this guy shows up at this person's, <coughs> this person's door. This would be like LeBron James knocking on your door saying, want to shoot some hoops? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. Don't you use your hands. <laughs> it'd be like Aaron Rodgers showing up at your house saying, Let's watch a Packers game together. He can't play, right? He's injured. Going to your house. Let's watch a Packers game together. This would be like Carrie Underwood coming to your house and saying, got my karaoke set here. You want to do some singing? Like, what? How could this possibly be that the most, second most famous person in Jerusalem shows up at my doorstep? Nicodemus is all business. Is Jesus here? Yeah. Come on in. He's, he's, he's right over there. Is there a place where we can talk? Yeah. 
Jesus and Nicodemus ascend the outside steps <clears throat> to the flat roof <coughs> that's above, and up there on the roof they begin to have a conversation. The, the view is beautiful. Could, could they see the city of Jerusalem awash in the faint light of the oil lamps? Maybe. Could they see the Temple Mount? Maybe. In any event, Nicodemus comes with a question, and it's hard to know how to ask the question, so he says, Rabbi, we know, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. That's not a question. That's a statement. That is a politically correct statement made by a, a man who knows what he wants to say, but he's too important to say what's really on his mind. So he says the politically correct thing to say. Um, so Jesus answers the question behind the question. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what's Nicodemus's question? The question is, how can I experience the kingdom of God? Well, you remember if you were here for the kingdom of God series, the kingdom of God is present and it's future. It's now and it's later. The kingdom is something that happens as Jesus comes on the scene and is incarnated. The kingdom is fully formed after Jesus returns. The kingdom is now and it's later. It's present and it's future. Right now, today in your life, and this would have been true in Nicodemus's life, the kingdom is where Jesus is present. Jesus was present on that roof in that place. His kingdom presence is there, and Jesus is present here. He abides with you. So Jesus' kingdom is present and visibly here. But Nicodemus' essential question is this, how can I encounter the presence, the kingdom presence of God both now and later? That was a shocking statement coming from, from this man. And anybody else would have said, Nicodemus, buddy, my friend, my friend, you're in the kingdom. You of all people are in the kingdom. Come on, why would you even ask that, that question? Now, if encountering God was about having the right credentials, Nicodemus was, was definitely in. And here's, here's the reason why. <coughs> Nicodemus, number one, was a Pharisee. You know, there are denominations that we have in, in the church today. Uh, Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Baptists, and so on and so on. Um, and back in, in those days, they had the equivalent of denominations. <coughs> and there were Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. And Nicodemus was a member of the largest denomination, the Pharisees, and the Pharisees distinguished themselves by their external goodness. They took the 613 laws of the Old Testament and layered on more laws and more laws and more laws and more laws so that they could do all the laws perfectly. In fact, the name Pharisee means separated. They, they separated themselves from everybody else by means of their external goodness. Now, if encountering God's, God's kingdom presence was about being morally good, Nicodemus was in, and yet he is still gnawing with hunger for spiritual reality. 
Well, maybe it's about having the right credentials. Nicodemus was <coughs> an Israelite. In fact, uh, verse 1 tells us he was a ruler of the Jews. The ruling body of the Jews was the Sanhedrin. Seventy members comprised the Sanhedrin, and they were the ruling council for all Jews, no matter where they were in the world. Didn't matter if you were in Alexandria or Ephesus or Rome, didn't matter where you were, the 70-member ruling council ruled all the Jews in the world. And so if, if encountering the kingdom presence of God is about having power inside Israel, he had it. And yet he's pining away for reality, spiritual reality. All right, well, maybe, maybe it's going to come through more knowledge. Well, this guy's super educated. And we find out in verse 10 that Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. He's the most famous one. This guy is the Tom Brady of teachers in Israel. He's the Russell Westbrook of teachers in Israel. He's the Roger Federer of teachers in Israel. Anytime Nicodemus opened his mouth, people were blown away by the strength of his oratory. He was brilliant. So if knowledge is what gets you into the kingdom, he had it, and yet he's still pining away for spiritual reality. Maybe it's about wealth. Back then, the Pharisees believed in a prosperity theology, and the idea was if you want to see how godly a person is, what you do is you check their net worth. You figure out how much money they got in the bank. You figure out how much value they have in the metaphorical stock market. You figure out all that stuff out. And if they have a lot of money, you figure that God has blessed them, had poured out blessing upon them. Material blessings were a sign of spiritual growth. Nicodemus, according to tradition, was incredibly wealthy. So here's a guy who has everything that by the standards of that culture would suggest he was going to get to heaven, going to be in the kingdom. And Nicodemus is eaten up by emptiness. So Jesus now tells Nicodemus how he can experience God both now and later. <clears throat> Unless a person is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Now, you've heard the term born again for decades. Maybe you grew up hearing it in church. You've, it's a very familiar term these days. What exactly does the term mean? It has a double meaning, and the first meaning means to be born from above, <clears throat> and the second meaning means to be born a second time. And John, the gospel writer, often uses words with double meaning in the double sense in his book. You see this many times in the gospel of John. If the word has a double meaning, John will intentionally use it in the double sense, and he does, he does that here. And so the idea is that being born from above or being born from a second time tells you the source and the effect. In other words, the source of being a born again is God. God the Father is the one, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God is the one who produces this experience of being born again. Being born a second time tells you the effect of what the triune God does. We are renewed. 
there's a renewal that takes place. So the first meaning of born again refers to its source. It's from God. The second meaning refers to its effect. It produces transformation. You put the two meanings together, and here's what you get. The sovereign God transforms us in such a radical way, it is as if we were born again. And yet, we are truly, in actual fact, born again on the inside at the level of our human spirit. So Jesus is saying, in effect, to Nicodemus, Nick, you can't experience God now and later by doing good works, by serving humanity, by getting rich and famous, by being well-connected. None of those things work. You have to have a spiritual transformation. So let me take you back to my, my favorite illustration of this, uh, which is the chrysalis of the monarch butterfly. You look at that. Isn't that beautiful, that thing you see on the screens? That is beautiful. And you start with this caterpillar, and you end up with a beautiful monarch butterfly. So <coughs> how does that happen? The caterpillar hangs from the underside of a branch. Uh, his skin gets pulled inside out. A chrysalis, a cocoon house, begins to form, and he's in that cocoon house for two weeks. During that time, a total transformation takes place. The caterpillar grows wings from cells that are already present in his body. Um, <coughs> his tiny little forelegs disappear, and his true legs grow. He has some pretty cool colors, you know, on the leaf there as a caterpillar, but now the true colors begin to grow onto his, his wings, and it's all hidden. It's hidden. If you look at the, at the green, the jade green picture, all that stuff is hidden. It's only, it's only just before he breaks out of the chrysalis that it becomes transparent, and you see the beauty of what's there inside. The monarch breaks out of his, of his, uh, his chrysalis, uh, his sack, his home, and he hangs there upside down. And if you look in the picture, you see that the wings are sort of shrunken and they're sort of swollen. They look like an unpressed shirt. And what he does is he takes the blood from his abdomen and he squeezes that into the wings and the wings expand, but they're still soft. So he keeps hanging there and the wings dry in the sun. And the moment they dry, he knows instinctively how to fly. Now, if you were um, an emerging scientist and you saw the, the the, the, saw the caterpillar, you'd think, that thing's not going to fly. Aerodynamically, there is no way that thing is going to fly. The only way it can fly is through a transformation that happens in a hidden place inside a dark, quiet cocoon, and it's a stunning transformation. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nick, you, you want to experience God both now and later? All your credentials aren't going to cut it. <coughs> you have to encounter <coughs> a fundamental spiritual transformation. Nicodemus is blown away by all this. So Nicodemus, um, in his frustration, up there on the rooftop says, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, Nicodemus is not being literal when he says this. He's being ironic. 
Nicodemus recognizes, I have been climbing up the ladder of success, and I realize now it's on the wrong wall. So what do I do? Do I climb back down the ladder and, and go up this other? I'm, what do I do? This is so frustrating. I've spent my entire life thinking it was this working my way up to God for salvation. And now you're telling me that's not the way? He's, he's blown away by this. Uh, so Jesus gives some illustrations. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That's illustration number one. Illustration number one is pretty easy to understand if you're a parent. Because what you know if you're a parent is that when the water breaks, the baby comes. And you best hustle to the hospital. We've had that experience. Water breaks, baby comes. Well, baby didn't come quite yet, but Cindy said, get me to the hospital. And we, I drove her to the hospital, all nervous and fast and speeding. Um, and <clears throat> what <clears throat> Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, you know, there is the natural birth and there is the spiritual birth. And the two are entirely different. They're different. Natural birth doesn't get you into the kingdom of heaven if you're an Israel, if Israelite, if you're a Hebrew. That doesn't do it. You've got to have a spiritual transformation. Little baby is one new beginning. Being born again is another new beginning that happens later. Nicodemus needed another category, spiritual birth. And then something takes place up on the rooftop. What takes place up on the rooftop is there, there was a gust of wind that blew. And this gust of wind that blew ruffled their hair and their beards. And so Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's the point of the illustration? The point is that spiritual birth puts you in touch with the Spirit of God. Uh, Nicodemus wanted a relationship with the invisible God. He wanted a relationship that was deeply spiritual. He wanted a relationship like, like Daniel had, like Isaiah had, like Enoch had like Elijah had, a spiritual connection with the infinite personal God. And Jesus is saying, that comes when you're born again because the Spirit comes into your life and the Spirit begins to energize you and direct you and lead you. I've told you many times I grew up sailing with my dad. Very grateful to my father that he taught me how to sail at an early age. Uh, over the course of the last 40 years, uh, every Two and a half to three years, we have some big sailing adventure. And these days, every time my father and I sit in at the helm, we spend a lot of our time looking up at the sails and looking down at the water. Because you know where, this, where the wind's coming from by looking at the water and looking at the telltales on the, on the sail. And we're looking at that because we want to see if we can make our destination. 
Because if we can't make our destination, we've got to tack up into the wind. It's invisible wind. But we catch the sense of where it's going by the telltale signs. What Jesus is saying is being born again gives you the ability to sense the movement of the Spirit in your life so that you have a dynamic spiritual relationship with God where He leads you in real time. That's the present form of the kingdom, the manifest presence of God. Notice how the roles have shifted on the rooftop. Nicodemus, who is um, the teacher of Israel, becomes the student. And Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, becomes the teacher of Israel. So now Jesus explains exactly how Nicodemus can become born again. First, you got to understand, Nicodemus, that I am God in human flesh. Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, there may have been more conversation that John decided to leave out here, but what John did in that statement is he gave us a compressed understanding, a compressed knowledge of the deity of Christ. Because this language goes back to Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where Daniel is describing God the Father as the Ancient of Days, handing the kingdom to His Son who comes. What Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. I am God. If you want to be born again, if you want to have inward spiritual transformation, you have to get the identity of Jesus right. He is the eternal God-man. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God in human flesh. You got to get it right. I once shared the gospel with a friend of mine from Dallas, and the guy prayed with me to receive Christ. I was so excited about this. And came back to him the next week, and he said, Rod, thank you so much. Thank you so much. He says, now I've added another deity to my collection of deities that I worship. I said, what? What? What are you talking about? He said, oh, you know, I, I grew up in a home that was um, sort, of a, sort of a Hindu-oriented home, and we sort of add deities to our worship pantheon. Oh, I said, you didn't get it. I said, no, you come to Jesus as the infinite personal God of the universe. He said, oh, I... I didn't, I didn't understand that. Well, you have to understand the deity of Christ if you're going to encounter spiritual transformation. Then he says, Nicodemus, you've got to understand the concept of sacrifice. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This comes from Numbers chapter 21 where the snakes had come into the camp in Israel. And people were being bitten by the snakes. The venom was ravaging their bodies and they were dying. And so the people say, Moses, you've you got you to save us from the snakes. Everybody's dying. And so God says to Moses, I want you to cast a bronze serpent. I want you to put the bronze serpent up on a pole and tell the people of Israel, look at the serpent and be saved from the venom. 
It was an incredibly gracious thing for God to do because God didn't say, run around the pole three times, hug the pole, embrace the pole, touch the pole, high-five the pole. didn't say any of that. Look at the pole. Look and be saved from the venom. This is a beautiful illustration of the gospel. And so Jesus is giving a compressed picture of what the gospel message would be as he goes to the cross. So, if you want to be born again, if you want to encounter spiritual transformation, you must understand the concept of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Being born again comes through us trusting in the work that Jesus did on the cross as our sin substitute. And by, by the way, I will tell you that these days, that's becoming a very unfavorable concept, even among Christians. Many, many so-called Christians, people in the church, people in the church world are saying, oh my gosh, that's such an such a archaic idea, one person dying for another. Let's soften it a little bit. I'm telling you, Jesus himself used the most vivid illustration, snake on a pole, to indicate that he was our sin substitute. Powerful illustration. You want to be born again, you got to know who Jesus is, and you have to understand the concept of sacrifice. And then you have to understand the right response. The right response is, is faith, it's belief. He says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You looked at the pole, the snake on the pole, you looked at the pole, and that looking is what belief is. Belief is simply looking at Christ and saying, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead, and I am entrusting myself to his finished work. And that act is an act that produces spiritual <coughs> transformation. Now, <coughs> at this point, the gospel writer, John the gospel writer, is very fired up. He is very fired up because John the gospel writer um, breaks in with an editorial comment. Most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John the Gospel writer, so fired up about this story, wants us, the readers of the story, to get it. And what, he, what he's saying is that God loves you, God gave his son, God wants you to not perish, but have eternal life, and all that comes through belief. So think about belief for a second. Imagine that several weeks from now, it's Christmas. I feel a little pressure as I say that. Got a lot to do before then. But imagine it's Christmas morning, and I take a box, and I give the box to my wife. I hold it out to my wife. The box looks like it's pretty expensive. The box looks like it, it may have something pretty valuable. It's, it's nicely wrapped. My wife has two responses to that box. She can say, Rod, uh, I don't think I want it. 
looks like it's more expensive than the present I bought you. So I, I'm not deserving of it this year. Or, you know, I haven't been the best wife this year. She has, by the way, but go with me on this. I, I just don't think it's, I merit this now. She could refuse it. Now, if she refuses that, that present's not hers. What do I do? I take it back to the store. They say, why are you returning it? My wife didn't want it. I'm getting my money back. It's not hers. But if she, if she takes the, ar- the arms of faith and she takes it to, she just takes it, she just reaches out and takes it, it's hers. And, and if I say, honey, I'm, I'm gonna return that present. What are you talking about? It's mine. You can't return something that's mine. It's hers. And what the gospel writer wants to tell us is this is the most amazing deal ever. Jesus purchases eternal life and he offers it to you as a free gift. And he asks us to take it. Now, what happens to Nicodemus? What happens in that house, that rooftop house, that rooftop conversation? What happens? I don't know for sure. But I'm pretty sure that Nicodemus listened to the graphic illustration of the snake on the pole. I'm pretty sure he looked Jesus in the eyes and he crossed that line of faith because by the end of the Gospel of John, he's clearly a follower of Jesus. Takes him a while to deal with all the political issues of being a famous guy in a hostile country, but he becomes a follower of Jesus. And he walks back to Jerusalem that night, a transformed man. Now, I want to go back to the main idea of the story. And here's the main idea is this. Encountering God both now and forever. 